we're back with more Mark's Madness. It's titled... More Mark's Madness! It's titled, there's a logo going on, there's all sorts of things happening. Uh, the, uh, but it's been a while since we've got, got to hang out with our good buddy, Papa Carl. It's It's been a long time. We have things come up in three different weekends, and this is a chapter... <laughs> good chapter to have those delays. It's a big-ass chapter. Yeah. It is one we could have each read in a week, but we each took the three weeks, and I would tell you, I did. I finished rereading it mm-hmm. um, two days ago yeah. because the life that happened that delayed this a few weekends uh, also delayed my reading. Yeah. And it but, is a uh, it, it, it's a meaty one. There's a lot of that meat that you, uh, God dang it, you're going to get saved from because we will be cutting it out for you and, <laughs> and distilling it for entire you. Entire pages, entire giant <laughs> chunks, and this is why you're here or because you didn't want to suffer through this like we did. Yeah, we will we will die on that cross for you. Yeah, uh, just to give you an idea, there are 28 pages of footnotes. And one of them is super important, but the rest of them are less so. <laughs> they're Holy footnotes. They're Doesn't matter how important. They're footnotes. Footnotes. <laughs> 25 pages. That's Did, how long the chapter is. Didn't expect you to read this, and I spent 28 pages on it. I yeah. Mean, yeah. It's <laughs> it's good. Now, again, you know, I mean, we're going through this so you don't have to. I would still encourage anyone to read oh, God, Das yes. Kapital, but um, it's a big one. It's a tough one. We're going over it to, to summarize it. And uh, to help you understand, if you do read it, help digest. And also, again, you know, uh, price, God, was it price, profit, and value, and uh, labor theory of value, I think, are the two. Um, If you uh, read those, it's two of Marx's version that summarize basically this. So that's another good way to go and then listen to this. Uh, So we're going to start with section one, the development of machinery. Kind of a broad topic. <laughs> kind of a broad topic. Also, and where you're going, hmm, this seems important. I think we might care about this. <laughs> I think we might care about this. And he's going to start off with a hot one. He's going to say, like every other increase in productiveness of labor, machinery is intended to cheapen commodities and, mm-hmm. by shortening that portion of the working day in which a laborer works for himself, to lengthen the other portion that he gives without any equivalent to the capitalist. In short, it's a means of producing surplus value. So that's sort of a big deal, just like right off the bat, like, boom, kick in the door. Hey, machines are only there to make shit cheaper for, not for you, not to make stuff better for you. No, No. just to squeeze more value out of you. No, and I mean, that's a clear thing. And Marx will give some good examples and, and, and tie that back. But, you know, if you're thinking of like... A standard day now, you know, someone comes out with some big automation and you're like, ooh, yes, this will make my job easier. And the next thing you know, you might not have, have a job, job. <laughs> and they're still making the same money. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, all these good inventions that are supposed to make your life easier, um, they're supposed to make your life better. And in a socialist society, they would. In a capitalist society, they only work to profit the capitalist. And all of that benefit that's supposed to come to you just evaporates away into some greedy pig's pocket. Most of the time, yes. Most of the time. And again, that does not ignore, because this is a very common complaint, the the, the first half of that is machinery is intended to cheapen commodities. Yeah. A side effect of cheapening commodities is that people will have more commodities. So just... Say when we say that you know oh it doesn't benefit you well, but we have iPhones now yeah every because you got stuff so incredibly cheap that you can you know produce it at a level that the the proles cannot you know afford that's a side effect of this but it doesn't change the fact that the net reasoning for it is again back to a couple chapters ago shooting for this kind of ephemeral technological advantage that lets you exploit surplus value relative surplus value that somebody else doesn't get. It's not to make things cheaper. It's not to make life better. It's to chase this dragon of, 
I've got an edge on the guy for two minutes because I did it better, and now I can make my magic money real quick. Yeah, and like and like Mark's touched on before, that evaporates, and now your means of subsistence are cheaper. Mm-hmm. Everybody's living closer to hand to hand to our mouth, um, except for fancy iPhones. Yep, and it just keeps on cycling. Yep. Um, something else interesting too is that we realize something that Mark didn't even get to see, but I think he kind of leads on to when you hear this chapter that. That progress in technology, industrialization mattered. I mean, Mark said, you know, one good thing about capitalism is it does progress, you know, this innovation. It just all goes to some guy's pocket. But it was industrialization that he tied to that. Well, we've seen societies with industrialization that don't have capitalism. And the standard of living was increasing at the same rate. Yep. Um, Well, other than the aspects where it increased exclusively there, like, you know, the, the... lack of poverty and things like that, but just mm-hmm. the pure technology stuff, it increased at the same rate. So you having an iPhone is not capitalism. That's human innovation. Yeah. You know, you needing an iPhone or you can't <laughs> have a job while simultaneously not being able to afford an iPhone, that is capitalism. And this is not, again, this is, there is some, there, and we'll get to it as we get through here, but this is not a a Luddite argument, and funnily enough, we will touch on exactly the Luddite movement in this chapter. Thank you, Marks. Uh, but it, it is, this is not saying that technology is bad, go break all the machines. Oh, yeah, no. Th- this is... We're not cynicalists here. Exactly. Again, we're materialists. You look at the world, as it, and you have to acknowledge that you, once things exist in the world, you can't just pretend they don't. If you're going to change things, you have to work with what you've got, and that is... The apparatus we're working with. Yeah, we've touched on social constructs before. They're made up things for society like race and things Mm -hmm. like that where, you know, gender roles. But once they're made up and they're given some power and some normalcy, you know, it would be great to dissipate them. There's nothing in nature mm-hmm. that holds them there. And you need to know, like, you know, there people will, will say, you know, misogynistic or racist or transphobic things and point to nature. And that's not actually mm-hmm. from nature. But it's a real material thing you got to reckon with. you got to recognize this reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to do that to undo it, you yes. know, or to take its power away. Um, so we're going to jump back into here a little bit. We're yeah. going to say that Marx was starting to define machinery, and he was saying there were mules and steam engines before there were any laborers, uh-huh. whose exclusive occupation it was to make mules and steam engines, just as men wore clothes before there were tailors. Mm-hmm. Okay, so pretty simple stuff. Yeah. It says the inventions of Vulcanson, Arkwright, Watt, I think I pronounced Vulcanson right, and others were, however practicable only because the inventors found ready to hand a considerable number of mechanical workmen placed at their disposal by the by the manufacturing period. Some of these workmen were independent handicraftsmen. Uh, others were grouped together in manufacturers in which before mentioned division of labor was strictly carried out. And as inventions increased in number, the demand of the newly discovered machines grew larger and the machine-making industry split up more and more into numerous independent branches and the division of labor of these manufacturers was more and more developed. So he's saying this is how machinery came about. Um, I'm also going to kind of summarize what he says a machine was because he spends like three paragraphs Good Lord, it. yes he does. <laughs> so basically, Good Lord. he says a machine was three parts. It has power. And he goes into, you know, power can be wind or, you know, oxen. Or it could be a motor or electricity, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It has power, it has an adapter of that power to the tools, and it has tools. So a hammer is not a machine, no. that's a tool. Yes. Okay? But a steam hammer, mm. which has steam power, has a mechanism to make the steam swing a hammer, and has a freaking hammer, that's a tool. Yes. A computer is a tool. You know, I mean, these are all tools. A big robotic arm would be, or I'm sorry, it's a machine. I'm sorry, it's a yeah. machine. Computer's a machine. Uh, big robotic arms are machine versus, you know, just a tool. You know, the yeah. screwdriver is a tool. Um, 
technically a drill is a machine, but the way we use it is as a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there you go again. You know, machines make tools make the labor more more efficient. And that's yeah, that's that's the big one. There is that we're we're using it to do something more efficiently than if we were just using a tool in the normal way we use a tool. That's really the big one is, 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 is it a machine? Well, is it doing a task that a person could do, but doing it more efficiently? Yeah, probably a, probably a machine involved there. There's probably a machine. Yeah. And that's one, one important aspect of it too. It uses this power to, you know, you have the tool. The tool's not going to do anything on its own. Hammer doesn't do shit on its own. Screwdriver doesn't do crap on its own. All right. They're just not going to do anything on their own. But so, what is a Roomba a tool or a machine? Oh, it's definitely a machine. Okay, go, go Roomba. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you have a human task like vacuuming, <laughs> or swinging a hammer, yeah, or spinning a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. That's a human task. So a machine has to have a human task to manipulate, mm-hmm. and the machine is no good if it can't do it better than a human. Yep. Unless, of course, for accessibility. But we live in a capitalist world. Those aren't <laughs> machines aren't being made for accessibility. No. Which is, you know, extremely unfortunate. But. Yeah. Um, so he says, you know, a radical change in the mode of production in one sphere of industry involves a similar change in other spheres. This happens at first in branches of the industry which are connected together by being separate phases of the process mm-hmm. and yet are isolated by the social division of labor in such a way that each of them produces an independent commodity. So he's saying, you know, you're dividing stuff up. And we, we can go back to the, the, the thread and the glove and stuff like yeah. that. Right? Uh, so he's saying... If we make, you know, making yarn more efficient, we got to figure out a way to make a glove more efficient or the yard's going to back it up. Because those are divisions of the same labor of making the glove. Yep. But they're also essentially separate commodities. You could just sell yarn itself. You could, yeah. Okay. Uh, he says, thus spinning by machinery made weaving machinery n- necessary. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, okay, that was the example you see. I forgot this. Because it's <laughs> Uh, (laughs) And both together made mechanical and chemical revolution take place in the bleaching, printing, dyeing imperative. We're not going to talk about carroting. So, too, the other part. (laughs) On the other hand, the revolution of cotton spinning called forth the invention of the gin. Mm -hmm. Not the kind you drink, the cotton gin. Yeah. uh, For separating the seeds of the cotton and the fiber. It was only the means of this invention that the production of cotton became possible on the enormous scale as present required. Yes, and that's again you you see it. You can think of it in almost any industry. In the in the auto industry, you know, as soon as you start having a really super efficient process for making tire, you know, for for making car frames, well, you got to come up with one that can produce tires at the same rate, one that can produce glass for windshields, and then what about all the electronic components? It's like, well, we got it. So everything when you think about a a, a product. You have to think about all the component parts. And again, this comes back to that alienation of, you know, oh, well, I just I just screw the wheels on. Well, yeah, but there's a whole giant, you know, infrastructure in place here that you are just a cog of. And you have to kind of realize that all of those aspects are going to have to, re- you know, ramp up at the same point. Yeah, I mean, the, the point of screwing a wheel on doesn't matter if there's no car. Exactly. You know, I, you sometimes you got to realize what's means and what's an end. Yep. And like Marx talks about with things being atomized, you know. They atomize what I'm used to using from programming, but it's the yeah. way you divide up the work. You know, I mean, when you atomize things, you're they look like completely separate commodities. Mm-hmm. But they're not really pl- completely separate commodities that can plug and play, but they're really a step for a larger commodity. They can be a step for four different larger commodities, ten different larger commodities, but they're a step for a larger commodity. That's what they really are. And you don't think about you I mean, you don't look at your iPhone and go, oh, man, this probably required some serious revolutions in the mining industry, but... 
yeah, <laughs> like some I'm, brutal, we're, intense labor and force. Oh yeah, oh no, no, no. And when I say innovation, again, there are two ways to get innovations. You can get a fancy <laughs> machine to do it for you, or you can just uh, murder people essentially to work them to death, trying to, to yeah. do it more efficiently, we're, one way or another. We're gonna make sure we get on imperialism when the time comes. Oh, it's coming. It's oh, it's, uh, it's coming. I feel like I mean I mean the time comes in our progression of reading. Okay, okay, I was about to say <laughs> the time is more than come for it's... the United States. By the way, I will say this: we we touch on this in another chapter. I will reiterate this. Marx talked about white skin cannot be liberated until black skin was in the United States. Yep. Well, Americans cannot be liberated until we liberate the rest, the global South, from our colonial push, our imperial push. So you know, uh, imperialism is going to be a big subject of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're Marx Madness, we're going to expand to other Marxist theorists, and yep. we're going to get into imperialism, revolution, things like that. Right now, though, we're starting, we're starting, I don't want to say small, it's not no, no. the biggest. Yeah. But we're starting at the base. The foundation. The we got to build the foundation, yeah. and then we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah, we got we to gotta build the foundation. All right, so um, Marx goes on a little farther. He says, this problem Henry McCausley solved in the first decade of the century with the invention of the slide rest, a tool that was soon automatic and form implied other constructive machines besides the lathe for which it was originally intended. Oh, that's right. He was talking about the lathe. Again, it's been a couple weeks. Uh, The mechanical appliance replaces not some particular tool, but the hand itself, which produced from a a given form by holding and guiding a cutting tool along the iron or other material operated on. So that's really saying something that, that we kind of you know touched on in general discussion earlier, but Marx gets into. Marx doesn't leave these stones unturned. Machines are there to replicate the human form. Mm-hmm. They're there to replace something you do. And so a machine is going to be power, it's going to be a tool, and it's going to be a delivery of that power on that tool. But that delivery is always going to be a motion a human would make that's either inefficient for a human to do or too hard for a human to do like you know human can squeeze a rock yeah but a human is not going to crush a rock in their hand unless it's maybe sandstone yeah um, you know but a machine would crush a rock well it's still doing the human motion of squeezing a rock just much more powerfully Um, and then he goes on a little later down the road to wrap up section one he says machinery with a few exceptions to be mentioned later operates only by means of associated labor or labor in common Hence, the cooperative character of the labor process is, in this letter case, a technical necessity dictated by the instrument of labor himself. So he's kind of rounding back. He's saying, hey, we just had this big section on these machines. And I said right off the bat that they produce surplus labor. But only labor produce surplus labor. So what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. going, well, these machines aren't operating themselves. So there, there's two things at hand, right? Marx discovered labor, and he's gone over how... All these other things are constant capital. And Marx discovered labor. He discovered the variable capital is this phenomenon that only possessed to labor. It was a pretty magical thing. You always need labor to do things. You know, I mean, ore isn't going to mine itself, no. right? Um, you know, I mean, down to getting raw materials from processing, you're always going to need labor. So how do you make labor more efficient? Well, you can drive the human to, to the brink, or you can make the human's job easier. So machines are now this new thing. And their labor only lasts temporarily until the next the rest of the market catches up because they're constant capital. They don't add any value. But as long as the other market hasn't caught up and has not changed the standard value of something, as long as everybody hasn't gotten this machine to speed things up, if you're the one guy with this machine, right, you have some period of time 
where you're grabbing surplus value because the machine has made your labor more efficient. Yep. And that labor will stay more efficient until it drops in value to match that efficiency from things becoming socially necessary to match the machine. And then everything kicks again, and that's a, that is literally the cycle ad infinitum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ad infinitum. It's amazing that this system just has depression after depression after depression. Uh, it's like it's made to expand and crash. Uh, yeah, I'm about to say, it's almost like it's baked in and has to happen or the system can't function appropriately. Yeah. Weird. Wow, I wonder what guy said that. Weird. Uh, Super Carl, crazy. Carl, you got any thoughts mm. on that? <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump to section two. It says, a value transferred by machinery to the product. Now, this should be pretty intuitive by now. Yeah, and it should be. That was the other thing I was like, as I was reading this, I'm like, wait, didn't we already already do this? Like, we've done this. We've talked about this. Yeah, but Marx is hammering stuff in. And remember, you know, something I said is that the closer to being a worker you are, Mm -hmm. the more this stuff makes intuitive sense. So some of this has been making intuitive sense from us from our situation, and some now is starting to make more intuitive sense because it's getting a little redundant. That feeling you're getting from the redundance, the poorer you are, the more the entire book feels like that. <laughs> Makes so, sense. So hang on to that feeling. You yep. wonder why the poor people are the more they listen to Marx. Well, yeah. duh. You know, I mean, he's telling them what they already know, and he's laying it out extremely well. Um, so he's just making sure he ties things in together, keeps your thoughts straight. So he says, but just as a man requires lungs to breathe with, so he requires something that is the work of a man's hand in order to consume physical forces productively. A water wheel is necessary to exploit the force of water. A steam engine is necessary to exploit the elasticity of steam. So he's going to start with saying, you know, we need this power for these physical forces. And he's going to go on a little later. He's going to say machinery, like every other component of constant capital. So again, it's constant capital. Creates no new value, but yields up its own value to the product that it serves to beget. Insofar as the machine has value and in consequence parts with that value to the product, it forms an element in the value of the product. Instead of being cheapened, the product is made dearer in proportion to the value of the machine. And dear means more value. More valuable. Yeah, it's just old talk. Ye old, yeah. <laughs> Yay oldie. And it is clear that the noonday, the machine system, it's clear as noonday mm-hmm. that the machine and systems of machinery, the characteristics, instruments of labor of modern industry, are incomparably more loaded with value than implements used of handicrafts and manufacturers. So he's saying, obviously, you know, if you have a machine, it's going to be a lot better than some dude out there with a pickaxe doing his best <laughs> to make everything from scratch, you know? Uh, we could talk about quality yeah, I was about to from say, things like cooking, but uh-huh. and 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 we actually kind of will. We're going. That's that's part of fifteen. Is we're we're going to dig in there a little bit. He'll he'll touch on it, and then we can elaborate as we go. Yeah. Um, and he says, in the first place, it must be observed that machinery, while always entering a whole as a whole in the labor process, enters onto value beginning process only by bits. Only tiny bits in the machine's value goes away. It never adds more value than it loses on average by wear and tear. And hence the great difference between the value of the machine and the value transferred to the product. And let's see. This is all still in value. Um, mm-hmm. He says that every instrument of labor enters as a whole in the labor process only by piecemeal proportionally to its average daily loss by wear and tear the value beginning the process. But the difference between the instrument as a whole and its daily wear and tear is much greater in a machine than in a tool. Because the machine is being made more durable, has a longer life, and because its employment is being regulated by scientific laws. Mm-hmm. So you can't have some douchebag that doesn't know how to use the hammer smacking it harder with the machine. <laughs> the machine is going to have one set motion. Yes. So, again, it's constant capital, but it's more value 
than than what seemed like the machine's exchange value because remember you're getting a deal on that right yep uh, he talked about it doesn't change the machine's actual value if the price is sold for cheaper um, it's just a price gauging way a way to slip some profit but it won't stay there for very long well the machine's essentially going to have that because you're always going to get more out of its value because you're going to be the one who employs it on that labor, right? Yep. And if no one else has your specific production, or very few people do, the demand's going to be low, and you're going to be able to abuse a temporary uh, variance in supply and demand. It's when supply and demand are even that you're going to see something's true value. So that's kind of an interesting footnote that makes the machine seemingly adding value make sense. And yep. that's all I really want to get from that section because, yep. again, from the title... That section tells that's, itself. That's what it is. <laughs> yep. Uh, section three is the approximate effects of machinery on the workmen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to start with appropriation of labor power and employment of women and children. This is kind of silly and it may be, but, but there's something, if there's something I've noticed reading more, is that those, the heading titles are important. They are a really, really, for, for keeping yourself grounded and going. So just whenever there's a diff, significant difference in the way they're phrased, I always would like to point that out between our two. So mm-hmm. yours is the, the what, the most proximate? Uh, the proximate effects of, of yeah, the proximate effects of machinery on the work. Okay, my my the version I'm going off of is the most immediate effects of machine production on the worker. So oh. again, is that a uh. fundamental difference? No, I don't know. I think that they were probably saying the same thing, but just from a, if that makes this make more sense or keeps you more on track, that is the other way you could have read that. that I intro. I think if you put those together, mm-hmm. um, the only way those words don't have completely different meanings is if you mean the most direct. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, so th- again, that's so th- I, I think that's the best way to, to read those titles. So let me read it that way. Let's see if that makes sense. The most direct effects of machinery on the workmen. I think that makes. sense. I think that would section. work. Yeah, yeah. For, yeah. So there you go. So just just for making the again, the whole goal of this is to try and make this make more sense. So anytime, yeah. yeah, anytime we can distill, that's the goal. Yeah, here. I mean, what we're hoping is you read this and then yes, hopefully you can discuss it with a friend, someone else reading it. But if you can't, this can substitute for that and make it more accessible. If need be, we're also hoping this is good enough, even as a very I, big overarching The summary, worst cliff notes in the history of time. Right, the substitute reading if we want to be kind of goofy, shouty cliff notes. Yay! Uh, so he's going to talk about the employment of women and children. He says, insofar as machinery dispenses with muscular power. Okay. We're also talking about children. We're also talking about children. That's what. So lets that's it, a problematic sentence, it, but it's not that yeah, problematic. Yeah, it We're could be. Go on. It could be worse. We're going to go on, but just <laughs> okay. just met, let it be known. Marx has been problematic before. In yeah, the fact that he has the uncircumcised Jew thing again. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> but that sentence isn't isn't too bad. I mean, you got to remember, Marx. Yes. Marx's ideas are, are a science, a way of thinking yeah. that has done more liberating yes. for groups of people than any other way of thinking that's ever been out there. So. Yes. Uh, especially paired with with other yes. forms of Marxism, so just we're important, gonna s- important to not gloss over. Got to yeah. got to got to hit on it. You know, yeah. this was. Well, again, I, I don't think, think with the with the the awkward. You take sense. it. You take it. What you get. Yeah. So we're gonna say is insofar as machinery dispenses the muscular power, it becomes a means of employing laborers of a slight muscular strength. Those whose bodily development is incomplete, so children, mm-hmm. but whose limbs are all the more supple. That's just creepy. It uh, is. It, but again, and this is also you could you can look at this in a. Don't even, don't even, you don't even have to cut this into men, women, children. It opens up the workforce. It opens up the the available labor pool to an exclude to a group that wouldn't. There are. I am a giant, giant weakling. I have no no skills. Machinery gives me the ability to be a productive worker in a field I wouldn't have been before. Yeah, that's what we're getting at here. Now, if we get back to the beginning of the chapter, 
what that sounds like a good thing, we make things more accessible to people, is really just a way, and that's what Marx is really mm-hmm. going to get at. Oh, yeah. Whatever Marx says women and children, this is exactly what he's talking about. Especially children, you should probably have an issue with child labor, too, anyway. Um, he's talking about this innovation that makes things more accessible, you know, quote, a unquote. vampire full drooling, mm-hmm. dripping off the fangs, frothing at the mouth, loving this opportunity, yeah. going, ooh, more labor this to is, exploit. This is, yeah, and if th- this is one of those chapters where it starts becoming abundantly clear what's going, like, this section <laughs> is very, very, like... <laughs> Marx is not nice. Oh, shit. Oh, no, he did not. Okay, yeah, that yeah. happened. And, oh, and, man. And you do have to realize, too, you know, I mean, Marx is, is not only here to stand up for the little guy, obviously, um, but even today... Even just setting beside this Marxist theory and just yeah. looking at the world today, women and children are always cheaper to pay. Yeah. Always cheaper to pay. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, women deserve to be paid just as much as men. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's a distinction in and of itself. I mean, I can understand and, some argument for experience very, you know, paying, you know, yeah. me more than someone that's, you know, half your age and doesn't know how to do a thing, but it's still kind but, of silly. But even children, too, and I'll say this, you know, I mean, my wife worked in high school. I had to pay for her own car yeah. and stuff. I mean, her I her father is a sweet guy. He, worked, he works his butt off. He's a hard-ass worker. Um, did his best to make sure his family had a roof over their heads. He's barely scraped by getting that. They mm-hmm. they grew up pretty poor. And uh, so my wife would seriously pay, not just pay for her own cars, like I'm teaching you responsibility, mm-hmm. but like, so she could have a car. Yeah. Uh, paid her father rent because mm-hmm. he just needed the money. Yeah. Um, if she's part of what's coming home to provide for that family at, at 16, 17 years old, why does she deserve less for the same work than someone else? And that's it. Yeah, on equal equal playing field. Yeah, equal playing field. Same job, yeah. same responsibilities. Hundred so, percent. You know, I mean, people look at minimum wage jobs and go, "Oh, these stupid teenagers—they're living in their parents' basement and dick, 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 dick." Well, not all these stupid teenagers are well off. You know, their parents make six figures and they're going out to make fast, do fast food, so they learn about the working place and buy some video games. I mean, a lot of these kids are helping their families get by. Yeah. And on top of that, minimum wage workers are, of course, overwhelmingly adults. And Mm -hmm. on brand with this section, overwhelmingly women. Mm -hmm. So, um, anyway, Marx was saying, the labor of women and children was therefore the first thing sought for by capitalists who use machinery. Ooh, they were ready to jump on that. There we go. Uh, The mighty substitute of labor and laborers was forthwith changed into the means of increasing the number of wage laborers by enrolling under a direct sway of capital every member of the workman's family. So hey, you remember back uh, a couple couple times ago, a couple couple chapters. It's been a minute. You can you can be forgiven for forgetting. <laughs> um, when Marx was talking about how part of what went into how do you determine how much you know you have to pay a person, and a lot of it was well, you got to keep them alive. Yeah. Well, you got to keep a person alive. You got to they have to you know provide for their family to reproduce. Wait a minute. What if? I start paying everybody less, but I just employ the whole family so that they still make the same net amount of money, but everybody has to work to get there. I suddenly have more laborers and it's cheaper. It's the same cost for me, but I don't have to pay everybody as much. This is delightful. Look at me go. Isn't life great? One laborer turns into three or four or five for the Mm -hmm. same price as one. The means of subsistence is there. It is pure and adulterated greed. Um, so he says, compulsory work for the capitalists usurped the place, not only of the children's play, mm-hmm. but also of the free labor at home within the moderate limits of support of the family. Now, this, this is important. This is a big thing. This um, is huge. There's a thing called social labor, and some Marxists have lined this sentence 
hard uh, into stone because of that. Um, this is something Angel Davis has touched on, some, some other Marxist theorists. You know, if you are out there working and your wife is stay-at-home, we don't have that many of those today, but it, yeah, if, she's, if she's stay-at-home, or say the wife's out there working, because that's employed now, and the husband's stay-at-home, is much more rare yeah. thing, but it happens. Yeah. Um, that work at home, that laundry, those doing the dishes and making sure the bills get paid, all that stuff, Cooking. right? Whatever going on. That, that is part of the labor, because without that, you, you can't have your job. You can't raise your family. You would have to cut out that time and work less. Yes. So... There's been a long time in misogyny this thing was like, well, I pay the bills. This is my house. And da, 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 and coming, you know, I, I look look what I do for you. And it's like, without all this, this social labor, domestic labor, that's the word I'm Domestic thinking. labor, without yes. Without all this domestic labor, what the hell good is any of that? And when you go back even even closer into Marx's time, I think this becomes more evident. I think now it, we we don't see this quite as much. I think so. With this this whole concept kind of becomes harder for us to mm-hmm. relate to than it would have for someone reading this in Marx's time. But back then, that sort of domestic labor you're talking about tailoring cl- you know tailoring clothes was a much bigger deal there. Yeah. Uh, ra- again, raising ki- raising kids there you know no guaranteed schooling system so you know teaching teaching girls and stuff like that how to how to do all this stuff and teaching kids just anything. This all was it, there was so much more to it that it wasn't just an option of well I'm going out for fast food tonight. Like no, somebody has to do this. And that's a job. And if you're getting that at home for free, yes. That's important. I love that you touched on fast food. Okay, so <laughs> this is exactly something Marx is talking about. You know, I mean, there there's a lot of, like, conservative is how we'll define Let's. this group of people. Let's. Gently. Uh, there's a lot of conservative, to be nice about the Nazis, uh, <laughs> people <laughs> who will just scream and, oh, the family values are gone today, the, the, the family... And, 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 I mean, the nuclear family is kind of a colonial setup. That's why they want to defend it so much. But even outside the nuclear family, you know, if you have cultural family groups, you know, I mean, maybe um, a lot of places would have, like, out to cousins and, and aunts and uncles maybe live under one roof or just grandparents on down or multi-generational families. But whatever your family group or community group is, the small group, right, that supports each other, that breaks apart as you spend time apart, as you're living your own different lives. So all these, like, you know, kids these days have no respect for their parents. Well, they're fucking working. Yeah. If the parents are working more, the kids are working more. It's not just because they're playing around with an AMI phone. Yeah. You know, um, the, the family, no one's there to take care of stuff at home. It's harder to raise kids. I mean, all this stuff is all pulled apart in these, these whatever your family, from the colonial nuclear construct to, to a more traditional family construct from a different culture, whatever your family construct, community construct is, it gets pulled apart by this. And there's some weird adverse effect. And one of the weirdest adverse effects is you have to grab food. You have to grab ready-made food. So people don't know how to cook as well. Um, mm-hmm. That makes food less healthy. That makes food harder to produce. That makes more trash. Uh, it makes a lot of things. And it's really hard uh, when you're poor because a lot of people, you will really get the idea that the wealthy want to scream at the poor. How dare you not eat your drool, gruel and like yeah. it? And one of the ways they do it is when they try to be clever. Um, the people that will tell you if you pay the rich, it will make the poor richer and trickle down, will try to be clever and tell you, if they're so hungry, why are they fat? Because the poorer you are, the more weight you gain. And it's like, 
How the shit do you think poverty works? Yeah, it's it's the most. As if, if you've ever gone to, a, if you look at nutrition, you know, just trash food. The cheapest food you can buy is insanely loaded. It's insanely loaded, and people think of appetite discomfort. Mm-hmm. Unless you've been poor, you don't know the pain of hunger. Yeah. It fucking hurts. Yeah. The only thing you give a shit about is can I afford it, and does it fill me up? You don't care if it's 800,000 empty calories. If you feel full, that doesn't hurt. Yep. (laughs) And so you will grab, like, you see the 50-cent boxes of macaroni and cheese, and you're going to grab, like, 500 of those and spend your entire food stamps on that shit. Yep. Uh, You know, and and you would be surprised how well soda ties you over. Yes. Oh, my God, yes. And so poor people drink lots and lots of soda because it's cheaper than food and it is surprising at tying you over and it's one of the few times that they have some real flavor. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, something else poor people are good at is hot sauce and seasoning yes. and spicy food. Uh, but even then, you know, sometimes you lack that because you just make up for it with cheesy fuck, butter, whatever you can find. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nice to be able to treat yourself to a hot meal. If you don't have time to really cook at home, even those box mac and cheese are hard to do. You're eating stuff cold. You can squeeze out a fast food meal once in a while. For God's sake, it's a hot meal. And it's cheap as shit. And holy crap, 80 trillion fucking Uh calories on a cheeseburger. And you better believe they're hounding that down. Uh And then, of course, you're fat. You have the health problems associated with that. You get poor. And it's just this vicious cycle. And then you go, hey, I'm overweight. I'm starving. I have bad health. I need money for health. I need real money for food. And people look at you going... Well, you're unhealthy because you're fat. That's your fault. And if you're so poor, why are you fat? And it's just, it's atrocious. It's, it's it, absolutely it's, atrocious. Yeah. You have to be cer- a certain level of disconnected from reality to like under to like yeah. look at that and understand. The, the chauvinism to say those kind of things is unbelievable. Yeah. But it seems common, right? It seems a tube. Oh, well, if you're hungry. So if you haven't been in that situation and you hear some rich shit asshole who's just trying to excuse poor people and blame them for their own problems, you might go. Oh yeah, that sounds nice. Ha ha ha. <laughs> and and you're not trying to be a cruel shit, but holy fuck is that a horrible <laughs> yeah. thought. So I just want to clarify for anyone who hasn't been poor, because I I haven't been poor in my, my teenage and only except for a couple of years in my adult life. I've been pretty well off most of my adult life and my, my older childhood, but I was I was poor in my younger childhood. It's it's not fun. No. No, it's no, not. no. No one no one voluntarily is poor. Yeah. No, it's not a choice. Yeah. Um, so then Marx goes on here a little bit and he says, the value of labor power was determined not only by the labor time necessary to maintain the individual adult labor, but the, mach- but the family. This is what Nathan yep. was talking about here. Yep. Machinery by throwing every member of that family in the labor market spreads the value of the man's labor power over his whole family, thus depreciating his labor power. Mm-hmm. To purchase the labor power of the family of four workers may perhaps cost more than it did than, uh, to pay for just the head. But in return, four days' labor takes the place of one, and the price falls in proportion to the excess of the surplus labor over the four laborers to one. Mm-hmm. And this is what we kind of, when we were talking about the, well, any five group of farmers together is the same as any other five group of farmers. You get enough people together. I don't care if it's women, children, and everybody else. You yeah. put enough people in a mass, and from a capitalist standpoint, perfect. They can all push the machine the same way. I, I win. I don't need you to be special. I need you to be replaceable and cheap. Yeah, and we talked about even in that situation, they have to be able to uphold socially necessary labor. They're so bad, they would sway those five people. Yeah. They stick out like a sore thumb and they're unemployable. Well, if a child isn't strong enough, the machine's going to fix that. So now, everybody's employable. So that that five people 
really is any five, five people because you just got to work the machine. Yep. And oh my God, is it so much easier to be disposed? I mean, and we're it's coming, but yeah, yeah, your uh, your job security no longer exists because you are infinitely replaceable at this point. Yeah, and 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 that's one thing capitalism. They'll touch on in here. Capitalism likes to have. Uh, a, a surplus of unemployed labor. It, it needs, needs that to, to exist. It needs, it needs that. To. I was about to say, it's not like a, it's, it would be nice. It's a, if there wasn't a surplus of labor, the system will start collapsing on itself. Yeah, I mean, this is a system that needs that surplus of labor. And yet, also, other than the surplus of jobless people, makes you need a job to survive. So this is a system that, by necessity, by its nature... Has to kill lots of people. Yep. <laughs> and keeps everybody right as close to that fringe line as humanly possible because the further away you get from it, the less likely you are to want to play that game. Yeah. All right. So children under 13 may work only. Oh, he, this was him talking about part-timers. the factory acts. The factory act, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there'll be a lot of that. This is related to England at the time. Yes. But you can tie some of this back. And I that will be my role here coming up pretty soon because, yes, I this was a very important factor to me as we go throughout this, but I'm not going to I'm not going to start it now. Okay, yeah, I mean, feel free to jump. I will, I will. Try. All right, so he says, you know, children of 13 may only work six hours. A surgeon officially appointed must certify their age. The manufacturer, therefore, asks the children who look as if they're already 13 years old. The decrease often by leaps and bounds in the number of children under 13 years old employed in factories. <laughs> a decrease so is shown in the astonishing matter of English statistics in the last 20 years. And for the most part, according to the evidence of the factor themselves, the work of certifying surgeons who overstated the age of the children, uh, uh, children agree, agreeably to the capitalist greed for the exploitation and the sordid trafficking needs to the parents. So let's distill that down. Uh, there, you had, you couldn't work a certain amount of time unless you were over 13. You, you weren't allowed to work more than, what was it, like six hours or four yeah. hours, something silly like that. So all of a sudden... They're, they passed the factory acts that said that, and there was this marked decree. They they cut the rates of those kids working in in in, but dramatically. This is great at work. No, no. The person that said whether you were thirteen or not was a doctor paid for by the capitalists. So you just found any kid that kind of looked like they were close to thirteen and then lied about it. Like it, it's all it was. That's all you did is just a new way to cheat the system. Yeah, I and mean, we talked about this, right? You know, I mean, like unions. Unions are a great thing. That doesn't mean every union is perfect. No. Uh, sometimes their their leadership is kind of shitty, and hence that's why wildcat strikes happen. Go teachers, love teachers. Woo! Heart, heart, heart. Um, you know, and a wildcat strike, I, I don't know if I touched on this before, but if we I did. It, okay, good. So people know what a wildcat strike is. Um, you know, so, I mean, unions are, that, that's because it's on your side. You have to understand interest. Well, this government... At some point, it talked about, you know, government exists as a tool for the capitalists, but it's to keep their own sanity, to keep them from hurting themselves. Well, that doesn't mean that the law applies equally. So Marx, up to this point, and he's going to really keep it very extremely through Chapter 25, this idea of if everything worked the way it's supposed to, the system's still shit. He doesn't normally get into how it undercurrents, but this is a chapter where he will point out, especially in the women-children part, it's like... Oh uh, no! I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Of course, of course, these guys are going to act in their interest and act shady under the table. You know, I mean, the law is something written out, but it's not something that's executed. Ex- you know, evenly across platforms. I mean, the the number one type of theft out there is wage theft. Yep. More than burglary or robbery, any of that. Yeah, you know, all combined, well, over half is wage theft. People aren't getting prosecuted constantly for it or arrested or things like that. So this is the same kind of thing. You know, I mean, these capitalists. 
they're they're gonna essentially get their version of an arbiter. Yeah. You know, they're gonna buy their little chummy inspector and say, yeah, you know, fudge the paperwork. I mean, it, mm-hmm. when something's certified organic, it doesn't mean you grow it more organic. It means you have some money and pay some <laughs> some fines and fill out some paperwork. You can say organic, and you get charge more for your damn tomatoes. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, some farmer out there selling the farmers market has to say it can't say organic. Has to say no pesticides mm-hmm. used. For you know liability purposes, but all they did is not afford the damn paperwork. Yep. So, same kind of thing. And he's going to get back into this a little bit later on, about a page later. He says the spirit of capitalist production stands out clearly in the ludicrous wording of the so-called edu- education clauses mm. in the Factory Acts. Now, remember, he was talking about ch- taking away children's play. Yeah. Um, public education was something that that had to be fought for later on. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I mean, there's a certain amount of public education you still got even even here, and you're getting taken away. You know, why would you need to be educated? You have to work. And so the Factory Act, the people fought for, the Factory Act says, okay, you know, you have to be able to get the children educated. It says, in the absence of administrative machinery, and the absence, an absence again makes the compulsory uh, compulsion illusory, in the opposition of the manufacturers themselves to these education clauses, and in the tricks and do- dodges they put for the practice for evading them. So he's saying, you know, oh, they have this education clause. How are they going to get out of it? And yeah. here's a here's a quote from one of the reports on the Factory Act. It says, For this legislature is alone to blame by having passed a delusive law, which, while it seemed to provide for the children employed in the factories so that they should be educated, contains no enactment by which that professed end can be actually secured. It provides nothing more than that the children shall on certain days of the week and for certain numbers of hours, three in each day, being closed within the four walls of a, of a place called a school. <laughs> saying, you know, nothing is saying what they got to learn. And the, the employer of the child shall receive weekly certificate to the effect signed by the person designated as the schoolmaster or schoolmistress. So all they got to do is shove kids over in this box, slap school over it, call this person a schoolmaster, and, and make them sign a paper. Everything about this feels like such the, like, uh, neoliberalism has always just been a thing. Because this yeah. is, just, it's all, all this is, is the, def- it's just feel good, like, neoliberalism feel- is just liberalism. Yeah, it's just <laughs> it's, feel good nonsense. It, Le- well, we're getting there, but look at, look, we're to educate. No, you're not changing anything. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the hard work of boots on the ground um, socialists and organizers through the civil rights era. Mm-hmm. And the impending influence that people saw how good things were in the Soviet Union are just being rolled back into liberalism, and we're calling that neoliberalism. Yeah. It's just a return to liberalism. It's not a new kind. There's nothing new about it. Nothing new. <laughs> nothing new. It's it's. There's a lot of privatization to get it back there, which is a word that was created for exactly how the Nazis ran their economy. So thank you, Reagan, for giving us a literal Nazi economy. Woo! But uh, <laughs> other than how it's being rolled back. Nothing is new. No. So, and another thing, and I don't know if we've already got past. I was trying to one of my highlights, but so oh, we're we're yeah. talking about the, no, not at all. So when we're talking again about the. This is kind of back into again. There's legislation, but we know that's not happening. We know that's not working. Sure. So the contract is binding for the week. Seen in language while this market is going on is quite disgraceful. Sure. Uh, so it still happens. And again, talking about the the well, we're limiting when children can work and we're getting rid of them. But you know, in spite of legislation, the number of boys sold in Great Britain by their parents to act as live chimney sweeping machines, although machines exist to replace them, is at least two thousand. Now that little chunk right there, I think, is really important because. Machine, machines and automation, all of this great stuff 
is still highly, highly dependent on is it cost effect. This is not to improve quality of life. Yeah. This is not to make things better for anyone. This is, is there a cheaper way? Does this make the thing I want to do cheaper? Well, cool. I can shove a kid down that chimney cheaper than I can make the machine that does it. Is that going to give the kid black long at age 12? Probably, but it's cheaper and that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. This is, again, the machine can exist. We can have a better way of doing it. We're not, but it doesn't make me any more money. No, then I'm not doing it. Yeah, I mean, profit as a motive is only going to make you do something if it's profitable. You know, I mean, there's this idea that, like, companies will make these moral decisions because then they can market them or, or not lose customers mm -hmm. or stuff like that, right? Or, you know, make better quality product and stuff like that. But then they only have to make it pass as quality or pass as moral enough to market it and only in the areas that are people are going to pay attention to mm -hmm. and only enough to grab people's attention or be hidden away from people's attention if it's something bad. And there's a lot going on. It's hard for people to keep up with things. I mean, for Christ's sake, people still think the U.S. Army goes around to <laughs> liberate the world in yeah. some feel-good thing even after fucking Iraq and Libya and Yugoslavia and all that shit. So, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, there's, there's too much for people's heads to wrap their head around. It's just a lot thrown at you so fast. So all you have to do is market it. Uh -huh. So, I mean, if it's cheaper, if you can market around it, you know, profit is not going to drive the right decisions. No. It's just going to drive profit. Yes. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's like we talked about with cops, right? Their interest is the state. Oh, no, we, we didn't talk about it here. Oh, yeah, we're going to get into... To, to oh, we're going we're gonna to get Spoiler into, alert. Spoiler alert. After this book, uh, I think even before we get into imperialism, we'll get into state and revolution. Yeah. No, it, we're it, getting into it state doesn't, revolution. It doesn't, doesn't waste even a section of a chapter to get into this shit. Yeah. Uh, but their interest is in the state. So, like, if you see, you know, a cop, say, arrest someone for assault, huh. well, that's just because they want order because it looks bad on the state. It's easier to calm it down and deal with it. Their interest is in the state and might align with yours. Now, let's say they want to make being poor illegal something very common for states. And so they have a vagrancy law. So mm -hmm. you're homeless, and now you're thrown in jail for daring to be poor. Um, their interest in the state is still the same. Yeah. Now it didn't line up with yours. Now you're on the shit list. Yeah. So you have to understand these, these interests. Um, and so companies' profit margin is only going to be based on, on profit. They're only going to have to do what the profit is. If it happens to coincide with your interest, like make a bigger burger instead of a smaller burger when you want a bigger one, Great. Great. But they're not doing it for your interest. No. They're just doing it for profit. You're seeing it a lot with social social issues now. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, you know, I went to, example, I was at um, uh, uh, local in St. Louis. We were at the uh, Pride Parade downtown. Yeah. Uh, ten years ago, five years ago even, I can't, I, I, I wish I could say I'd been attending long enough to, to be able to see this change. I can't imagine the number of corporate people there would be nearly as high as it is. Yeah. Now yeah. you, I mean, you throw a stick, and eighty percent of the of, of the people participating, walking, or, or, or sponsoring the parade are giant, giant corporations. This is not a bad thing per se, but it, it's not like that. Like this is oh, well, we're we're here for the social morality of it. We're gonna we're gonna, no. It's because someone somewhere figured out that this is pro a larger percentage of your user base is probably in line with this way of thinking. We should get on board with that. The the thing you have to remember, I can't remember the three women's names. I think there were all three trans women. At least two were trans women. But Pride was started by trans women mm -hmm. uh, out of protest because cops were beating the shit out of them. Yeah. 
And if you go to a pride parade, there are cops everywhere. There are cops every fucking where, it's, wearing goddamn rainbows. Yeah, it's fucking. It's. It's not fucking right. <laughs> it's not. No, there, no cops at pride should be like a base level assumption. But it, yeah, it, it, it's. It, it just, but it's just extru- it, Again, this is not. You know, you can think your company is woke as fuck and and super into it, but at the end of the day, the second, the second that is not a profitable decision, they're not going to be. Yeah, they're not going to be. It's gone. Yep. Uh, And then this was kind of back into the the quoted parts of the report about. Oh, jeez. Yeah, this was this was a whole lot of Carl reprinted a a report on the factory accident. Dear God, did that get a little tedious? Yeah, well, but but it is a grading report. Uh, he says, on one occasion, on visiting a place called a school for which certificates of school attendance had issued, I was so struck with the ignorance of the master that I said to him, pray, sir, can you read? And his reply was, I, Samat. I don't know what the fuck that means. And as a justification for his right to grant certificates, he added, at any rate, I am before my scholars. So, basically, that sounds like a really roundabout way to say... Well, I, I, I can't read, but those people say I can. <laughs> oh my God. According to them, I can. Oh that's God. that's just fucked up. Um, and then right at the end of the section, uh, after all the, the reports and stuff, he says, By the excessive addition of women and children to the ranks of the workers, machinery at last breaks down the resistance to which the male operatives in the manufacturing period continue to oppose the despotism of capital. So... What this is saying is as the current working group was getting privy to it, they had to go out and get scabs. And they got scabs from these people's own families. That, that is fucking had cold. to be an awkward dinner time conversation. Yes. Like, uh, and again, can you have scabs if you have full employment and no one is no. you don't have this we yeah weird like it, it wouldn't functionally work in a system of full employment it's almost like you have to have it yeah. in order for your system to function <laughs> weird weird